spend the night, but joy always comes in the morning. Hear, O Lord, and have mercy upon me. Be my helper. You have turned my wailing into dancing. You have put off soft sackcloth and clothed me with joy. Therefore, my heart sings to you without ceasing. O Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. In the name of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we are officially in what is known in the church calendar year as Eastertide. Another name for this time in the church is the great 50 days of Easter, culminating on the day of Pentecost, Pentius 550. So there's all patterning that happens even within the church calendar. But right now we are slept out in the middle of the great 50 days of Easter. And it is this time in our church year that the wisdom of the church saw it fit. That we are to think on, to celebrate, and give thanks for the wonder of the resurrected Jesus. And so all of our gospel texts will include sightings of Jesus after he's been raised from the dead and before he ascends to the Father. And on this third day, or this third Sunday of Easter, we have the perspective of knowing on this side of the gospel story that Jesus is in fact resurrected. But if you put yourself in the middle of this particular story, the disciples still don't quite understand what has happened. They don't have the perspective that we do. And so they act as those who don't know. They've watched Jesus die just a few weeks ago. He's been hung on a cross. He was crucified. And now he's making breakfast for them on the beach. I can honestly say I can't blame the disciples for their confusion. So last week's text described how the disciples were so fearful they barricaded themselves in a house, and Thomas, the doubter, bared his soul and confessed that he needed proof that it was Jesus in order for him, in order for him to believe. So what does Jesus do? Jesus not only shows up, comes alongside Thomas in the most pastoral way, showed him his nail-scarred hands, raised his tunic, and showed him his pierced side. And he didn't just show him, he invited Thomas, touch and see that it really is real. And once Thomas touched, the text immediately says he believed. So today, we're at the Sea of Tiberias. It was probably more of like a lake, not exactly a sea, where it seems the disciples don't know what to do with the startling news of the resurrected Jesus. So Peter, in his most Peter way, says, I'm going out to fish. In other words, well, this is at least my take on it, 
I'm going to do what I know how to do and what I'm good at. I don't know what's going on with Jesus. I don't understand any of this, but I need to do something that's familiar. I need to do something that's comforting, so I'm going to go fish. Well, I guess maybe the other six disciples were feeling the same way because they didn't hesitate. They resoundingly said, well, we're going with you. So all seven of them get into their boats and off they go. They are doing what they know how to do, what they've always done. These men are career fishermen. Only this particular time, these career fishermen don't have much success. In fact, the disciples went out at night, which was customary. They tried to fish and they caught nothing. And so at daybreak, they see someone in the distance, and it's Jesus on the beach. And they come over, and he simply asks the question, have you caught anything? Well, the disciples quickly answered, no, because they hadn't. And what does Jesus do? He gives them explicit instructions to let down their nets on the right side of the boat, and they will have success. So, the one time while disciples are in a boat, they actually listened to Jesus. And guess what? They caught fish. Only under his direction do they have this success. Such great success that they were unable to haul all the fish in. And immediately the disciples who Jesus loved said to Peter, Oh my gosh, it is him. It is the Lord. So with their fish, they quickly make their way to the beach. And upon arriving there, they were greeted by Jesus. And he was doing this thing called cooking. He was manning a charcoal fire. He had fish on the fire. He had bread on the fire. He offered breakfast to the disciples. And he even invited them to join in with their newly caught fish. What strikes me about this third account of the disciples seeing Jesus in a resurrected state is how completely normal this seems to be. Jesus, for all intents and purposes, he's cooking a meal. The disciples, they've been out all night working, and like many of us, when we get home from work, we're hungry. Jesus knows this, and as any good host would do, has food waiting, fish and bread, both on the grill. When thinking of the Gospels, this is the only time I can think that Jesus is actually the one preparing the meal. Usually we see Jesus having a meal prepared for him. But in this particular story, it is Jesus who is actually the host. And in a very real way, I wonder if this was done so that the disciples would not have to question whether Jesus was real or merely a ghost or a figment of their imagination. He wanted it to be so clear to them 
that he was present. He was cooking. He offered them a meal, which when I read the text, looks a lot like a Eucharistic feast, doesn't it? Well, some of you may remember the last time a charcoal fire, it's only mentioned twice in the Gospel of John. The only other time the charcoal fire was mentioned was the night before Jesus' death. Does anybody remember that? It was in the high priest courtyard. And guess who was there? Peter. Peter was present. And he was asked three times whether he knew Jesus. Do you guys remember that? And what did he do each time? He denied him. That's right. And on the third time, what actually indicated this denial? Does anybody remember that? What crowed? Yeah. And it was then in his heart he knew that he had denied his Lord three times. And so fast forward, here we are again, gathered around another charcoal fire, this time on the beach. And Jesus has another interaction with Peter. But he asked Jesus a much more, or he asked Peter a much more intimate question. And in a clever way, to mirror Peter's previous three denials, Jesus asked Peter if he loves him. Guess how many times? Three times. Well, in my opinion, it's no accident that he was asked this three times, and you guys know I'm kind of a numbers person. The number three is pretty important in the story of God. Does anybody remember what three means? It means completion. It means perfection. It means redemption. So by Jesus asking Peter if he loved him three different times, Peter's denial, we already know this because we know what the number three means. Peter's denial will be redeemed because it's asked three times. That is how awesome the gospel writers are. As hard and as uncomfortable as I'm sure it must have been for Peter, he is asked pointedly three different times by Jesus if he loved him. It reminds me of how my mom said my full name when I was either in trouble or she needed to get my attention. Jesus called Peter three different names. The last time saying his full name, Simon, son of John, do you love me? The third time he asked Peter this, just as the third time he denied Christ, he was grieved in his spirit beyond words. Obviously, this touches a very deep place inside of Peter. And I wonder 
If it is actually the moment he realizes the magnitude of his previous denial, and he is absolutely overcome with sorrow. But it is also in this confession of love that Peter's previous denial has been redeemed. Jesus comes to Peter. He offers him redemption. He's been forgiven. And he doesn't stop there. Jesus invites him in. He invites him in to the work of feeding and shepherding the sheep. And he asks him once again, please follow me. Don't deny me anymore. Follow me. And this is where the story truly hits home for me anyways today. I know for some, these gospel texts, they seem a world away. They're of another time and place. What good does a story like this have for me in my life right now? But I'll push back. And as your priest, I want to say, I hope you can find yourself in the story. Because I certainly do. In part... As disciples, we too have been commissioned by Jesus at our baptism to do the work of God, just like our friend Peter. But what is significant to know, for me anyways, is that Peter messed up royally. And yet God still chooses him. The story of the calling or commissioning of the disciples is important, yes. The calling and the recommissioning of Peter after he's messed up, man, that's what really hits home for me. Because what it says is what God communicates in the Christian narrative, and it is this. We're never too broken, too spent, or used up for God, never. God is always in the business of redeeming and making right our wrongs, whatever they may be. That's a good thing, knowing that we have a God who loves us and never gives up on us, and that can be said, he never does. Rather, he does this miraculous thing. After each failure, what does he do? He invites us back to try again, providing encouragement and nourishment in our Eucharistic feast to engage in meaningful work in the world. So we're not so focused on ourselves. We want to serve him. So however you spend your days and time during the week, and it's all different for all of us, let it be known that we go about nourished by the body and blood of our, of our Savior. And when we are nourished, that then gives us the strength to tend and feed the sheep that God has put in our path. We are going to mess up. We may mess up, just like Peter. 
And countless others recorded in Scripture. I mean, if you read it from cover to cover, it's just one mess up after another. And so I hope we can all find ourselves in the story of God because we're right there. But then we get to the New Testament and we meet the resurrected Jesus. And he invites us to get back up again and again and again. Because each time we mess up or we don't quite get it right, it is an invitation from God to know that we can't solely depend on ourselves. We are completely and utterly dependent upon the one who suffered and died for all of our mishaps and shortcomings. Thanks be to God was resurrected so that we might know that death is not the end. Resurrection is always the winner in the story of Jesus. And that is for us too. Because we know where death has been, life will come. God, am I holding on to that? <laughs> I don't know if I have any wise words to share other than I hope you can find yourself in the story this morning and know that it's okay to mess up. I know for me, mess ups are hard, but the daily work I do is finding peace and acceptance in that. So we have about 30 days left in this time of the great 50 days of Easter. So what I would ask you, my people, is to get to it. Look for ways to make meaning if you're not already doing so. Accept the mess-ups and see them as invitations from God. You get another chance, right? Ask God for help. Ask him to show you what he's leading you to. If it's a spiritual home, if it's a new job, if it's a new relationship, whatever it is, ask for him to lead you to it. simply open your eyes. Open your eyes and your heart and mind and see the wonder of a resurrected God in the world. Because he's there. He's holding his nail-scarred hands wide open. And he's extending an invitation for you to join him. And I promise if you do, you won't regret it. And if you mess up, it's okay. I'm going to mess up too. I'll be right there with you. This is the gospel. This is the love of Jesus. 
It's simple. We mess up. We say we're sorry. And he loves us all the same. That is hope and that is good news, my friends. In the name of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.